welcome to another episode of Free Lunch, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. So Sarah, it's uh, it's March Madness week getting started. Uh, the NCAA college basketball tournament. You're, you're, it is indeed. Will you be watching? Are you filling out a bracket? So um, I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone, but I'm not really in on March Madness. But I was in New York last week and I found myself in a restaurant that billed itself as like the home for like the North Carolina something something. And the energy in there. Yes, exactly. The energy in this place was just nothing unlike anything I have ever just seen before rooms packed standing only. Um, and it was all very yeah. exciting. So I got a little taste of how this event really brings people together south of the border and north of the border as well. I think people though, they tend to travel down to, to experience it. What about you? They love their college sports in America in a way that we just don't have here in Canada in the same way. So an interesting thing about March Madness that I learned is that it's also one of the biggest TV events of the year. Like I saw this yes. chart, floating around on Twitter, which had the biggest broadcast events, biggest audiences uh, by each year. And it was almost always the Super Bowl or March Madness. So it's a huge deal for for sports media. It's also a really interesting year because this is, I think, the first year, if not the second year, that the players can now pursue sponsorship agreements outside right. of, you know, outside of what they do or, or get paid for the sport where, um, and, you know, March Madness was a massive, massive driver behind that. Look how much money we're making here. So it really brings a lot of attention to how much money goes into I mean, that's just college sports, but that really, that's, yes. that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? When you get to the big, big national leagues. Yes. And I don't know about you, but it got me thinking about how little I actually know about the business of sports. You know, I like to watch sports, but I don't really know uh, how it all happens. How, how is everyone getting paid in this? Where's the money coming from? How does it flow through the system? Uh, it's just something that I'm not that familiar with. So I thought it'd be good to have someone on this week who could speak to that and walk us through the business of sports the business of sports media, advertising, streaming, all those things. And we really do have the perfect guest to do it this week. Adam Seaborn is with us. He's a sports media analyst and head of partnerships at Toronto-based media company Playmaker Capital. Adam, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just kick it off at a very high level here. Can you just uh, walk us through how the sports media business works today? Who are the main players? Who's paying who? How are people making money? Just to set the stage for this interview. Yeah, yeah. This, the sports business is, uh, I think, often misunderstood a little bit in the sports media business, a little misunderstood. So, I, I mean, traditionally, the way that sports, uh, you know, teams, leagues made money, you know, if you go back in time, was gate revenue, right? People come into the stadium, buy a ticket, maybe buy a hot dog and a beer. And that's the main way that teams are making money. Uh, and the leagues would make money by pooling the rights to these teams and, and broadcasting them, you know, on radio and television. What happened in the last kind of 30 years is that licensing, that right to broadcast a sporting event became much more valuable than actually attending the sporting event in person. Um, and now that's what people think of when they think about how sports, you know, makes money. They think about the NFL, right? So Sunday Night Football in the U.S., the highest rated television show on, on U.S. TV, what that means is the most amount of people are watching TV during that time, which means that an ad during that broadcast is worth a lot of money. So the TV broadcast companies 
will pay a lot of money to the NFL or whatever league for the rights to broadcast a game, but really the rights to advertise against that content. So, you know, the big players historically have been the big broadcast companies. So in the U.S., you know, the big four networks, NBC, ABC, um, Fox, and uh, in the Canada, we have, you know, the big networks of Bell and Rogers. So, you know, traditionally, those are the big players. And to be honest, they still are the big players. We have a lot of change in the last couple of years where the streaming companies have gotten involved. So you have Amazon, Apple, um, and then the streaming versions of all those big companies I talked about. So it's really changed a lot, actually, in the last five, 10 years. I definitely want to get into the streaming stuff in more depth. But just before we go any further, what was the reason for that transition from teams and leagues making most of the revenue off the gate to broadcast? Is that just a factor of more people having TVs or what happened there? Yeah, I think, uh, one, TV's been in every household in the United States and Canada, uh, you know, from the time of 1950, 1960 to 1990, you saw like a real uh, increase of penetration of first broadcast TV. And then the advent of cable TV meant you could go from having three or four channels to hundreds of channels. That was really critical. Just the distribution became huge. Um, but the NFL was really the one. Um, there's an NFL game that's known as the greatest game ever played that went into overtime in the 80s. And it had this like seismic TV rating at the time. Or at the time, the things that got a lot of TV ratings, like, you know, Johnny Carson late night or an episode of MASH, you know, scripted half hour sitcoms or procedural crime shows. And the NFL was the first league that really had this like huge national TV uh, appetite. And some smart TV executives realized that. This live sports thing is, is a great opportunity to sell advertisers, great opportunity to capture audience on your network. So that tipping of penetration was huge. And then the cable penetration was a whole other advent because now, you know, instead of deciding between broadcasting, again, if you only have four channels, only so 24 hours in the day, you know, you can only broadcast one thing. ESPN comes on board and then you have, you know, ESPNU, ESPN2, you have Fox Sports in Canada, you have TSN launching in the 80s, you have Sportsnet and you have Sportsnet 1, 2, 3, 4, you know, 4, 5, 360. All these cable channels are just more opportunity for people to, to see games and it became much more lucrative because there was kind of no end cap at how much you could broadcast. And the other thing that's important, I think, to note on that, and again, this is something I think is a little misunderstood about how the TV networks make money. It's not just about the advertising dollars, specifically on cable. It's about the subscription fees, right? So we all know of subscription fees when you think of businesses like a Netflix of the world. You think, okay, I pay $20 a month for my Netflix subscription or whatever it is now. Uh, but people don't think about how much money cable networks were making, specifically sports cable networks, from those packages, those so-called bundles. So at their peak, uh, ESPN was making about $8 for every subscriber per month. It was the highest, what they call, carriage fee in the U.S. There were 100 million households that had ESPN in it. So, you know, quick math, 800 million a month before you sold a single ad is a pretty wow. good business. Were the American sports and, like, let's just say baseball, the NFL, like, were those already popular before everyone had TVs in their living rooms? Or was there something about the way that those leagues approached, like, acquiring fans once that was a thing that was different? It, that's a really good question. And I think that people today assume you know, the NFL is kind of the, you know, the worldwide king of, of sports television. Although if you talk to people in the United Kingdom, they'd say it's the EPL, the Premier League of Soccer. But 
you know, bang for buck, the NFL makes the most money. It's the best TV product that exists in the world. It wasn't always that way, and football was not always the biggest sport in, in the U.S. I mean, we we forget that the Super Bowl's only been happening for about sixty years. Uh, you know, there was a time a hundred years ago where horse racing and boxing and baseball were the undisputed kings uh, of of sport in in the U.S. The biggest celebrities would be imagine you know, that. Again, yeah, yeah, Secretariat. You know, is a top ten athlete of all time. If you ask people from you know fifty years ago, so. Absolutely. There was uh, an opportunity to capitalize on this kind of broadcastification, TVification of sports. The NFL, I think, did better than any other league of making a product that was, quote unquote, made for TV. And to his credit, the person who did it is probably the, the best owner in sports from a pure business standpoint, which is Jerry Jones. He bought the Cowboys for, you know, a hundred and some million dollars. They're worth about seven billion today. So pretty good return on that investment. That's about wow. a 30 year return. Um, but he is the one who understood that the NFL is much closer to pro wrestling in terms of the business model than it is to horse racing and that it's an entertainment product first and that the rules of the game and the way it's scheduled should be in service of the TV contract in service of the entertainment product because that's where the money is going to be made as opposed to the you know maybe more traditional sanctity of the sport, which is why you see the NFL be the most innovative when it comes to TV broadcast, the most innovative when it comes to getting big audiences. And you know, forever, they've owned a day of the week. They've owned Sundays. Has that impacted the product on the field? Like has, have, has football, I guess, specifically, or other sports, are they adjusting the rules of the game, how it, the actual sport plays out to accommodate those uh, business demands, I guess? So football is a great example because they're constantly changing the rules. If you were to look at the NFL 20 years ago or 30 years ago to today, a lot of it's unrecognizable. Um, they invested money in technology to get that first down line on the field, which now can you imagine not having the, the yellow line? The first I would have no line. idea what's going on. They, they were actually the first one that you know spent uh, put the, uh, the what they call the score bug. So in the bottom corner where you see the scores and the time. There was a time where that wasn't on the screen for most of the broadcast. The NFL realized that, you know, most people are watching this on TV. We should be putting the score bug on 24-7, which, again, at the time, people thought was weird. But from a rules perspective, um, you know, it's much more passer friendly for the NFL uh, quarterbacks now. If you hit a quarterback or injure them, you're likely going to get a flag played on you because they know that the quarterbacks are the stars and that people like to see a high-scoring game. So you don't see the ground-and-pound, low-scoring running back game. But maybe a better, more mo like recent example of rules changing is what's happening with major league baseball so we're in spring training right now for major league baseball um baseball is you know historically very bad at changing rules they've implemented a bunch of rule changes this year they've made the uh, base pads bigger uh, to encourage stealing bases and make it easier to score runs and they've implemented a pitch clock and that's really about getting the games to a shorter length and that's in service of the tv broadcast window and that it's much better to have a big audience for two and a half, three and a half hours, then an okay audience for four and a half, five hours. People just don't have the attention span for a five-hour baseball game. And the reason was is the pitchers were taking too long. So you know, put in a pitch clock, batters can't leave the box, TV product gets better, TV product's better, more TV money, revenue goes up for the league. So that's really the mentality that every league is having now is how can I improve the, you know, the value of my TV rights? When it comes to baseball, Adam, like, can you talk about the tension that played out with them trying to take a product that was made for kind of this older audience and then trying to fit it with this younger audience and like the exact tensions about making the game more watchable, I guess? Yeah, well, so baseball has been, it's America's pastime, right? It is really the oldest professional league. It has this historic stat base um, and baseball purists are really, really 
um, I would say, uh, you know, cognizant of change and also quite loud when it comes to making changes. Um, but for the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about the NFL in particular and now the NBA passing baseball in terms of uh, excitement, in terms of uh, stars and household names, and in terms of revenues, both for the leagues and the owners, but also for the players. Um, so I think baseball finally did come to a head here and realized that they needed to experiment with the actual on-field product. Um, we'll see what happens, right? We're in spring training right now. I would say the results uh, have been a little mixed, as you might expect. Younger viewers love the pitch clock. Uh, they love the idea of it. Uh, older, more traditionalists don't love it. I think throughout this season with Major League Baseball, which is a long season, we're going to see how these changes play out. Um, but you know, they are just one of, I would say, every league around the world that is exploring how to make the game more appealing to young people because you know, younger viewers, you know, anyone under the age of 30 who grew up with the internet, they are not having uh, a three-hour broadcast window. They're just not really inclined to sit for three hours and watch a game. They're, they're reaching the game in so many different ways. What about where things are going? Because we talked about how, you know, the NFL kind of outpaced the, you know, horse racing or boxing. Is there any, yeah. like, well, let's call them like an emerging market in the sports world. Is there anything that's kind of up and coming? Like, I think of like the e-gaming. I know nothing about yeah. that, but is there anything else that we should be keeping an, an eye on as far as what's generating attention and money? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the big big story that if I don't mention, I'm sure I'll hear about it on Twitter is Formula One. So a lot has been made about Formula One's growth uh, in the United States. Uh, so a little bit of context on that. A group called Liberty Media acquired the rights of Formula One. Formula One is unique in that it, it's not a league that has a bunch of different owners and a bunch of teams and they go to different cities. It's a tour model and it's very centralized in terms of Liberty Media owns this this entity that is Formula One. And then there are teams within that that have shares, but it is very centralized in terms of how they negotiate their broadcast rights and how they promote the league. Uh, what happened with Formula One is they, you know, Liberty Media, new ownership came in, realized there was a big untapped opportunity, specifically in the United States, you know, the biggest media market in the world, the most money. Um, they did a partnership with Netflix, produced Drive to Survive, which is a critically acclaimed, amazing documentary series for sports fans and non-sports fans alike. That series directly corresponded with TV ratings in the United States, exploding for Formula One. They've increased the amount of races that are taking place in the United States. Now you're going to get one on the Las Vegas Strip this year. And Formula One just renegotiated their broadcast rights with ESPN, who was previously playing only $5 million a year, which in the TV broadcast rights world is is essentially $0. It's essentially they were getting it for free. Now that's going to be a $100 million plus uh, opportunity for Formula One because there are eyeballs against it. So that is a league that is, you know, not maybe a traditional sport in a lot of people's minds, Formula One, um, but it is growing dramatically at a more amateur participatory level, which eventually will, I think, lead to big dollars in a professional league is pickleball. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the news around pickleball or know what pickleball is. It is if, you know, tennis is on pickleball. Okay, is, okay. Is what I'm hearing is that we all need to be taking pickleball a bit more seriously. No, pickleball is the real deal. Pickleball is, is growing <laughs> like crazy. I'm serious. There's a professional pickleball league right now. They are selling teams. We have celebrity uh, owners in pickleball. LeBron James is part of a team. There are multiple brands that are signing up with pickleball. We'll see if pickleball lasts. I'm still not sure if professional pickleball is fun to watch. I've certainly enjoyed playing pickleball. I've never wanted to watch someone else do it. Although if you had told me five years ago that I was going to wake up at 7 a.m. to watch a bunch of guys drive cars in Abu Dhabi, I would probably say you're crazy, but I find myself you know, following <laughs> Formula One now and I never did before. So I think people's habits can change. I might watch LeBron James play pickleball. <laughs> if that's part of the deal. 
there, there was some celebrity pro-am happening and some NBA players were there. So you might get that, actually. Who knows? When LeBron retires, he might have a pickleball career. Yeah. So is uh, this is a good segue, I think, into sort of the streaming side of things. Um, you know, you talked about how part of the rise of uh, the contemporary sports media business model, I guess, had a lot to do with cable and the cable bundle. And at least in every other aspect of media, we've seen that come apart, I guess, in the last five to 10 years, right? Like no one watches the same show at the same time anymore. Very rare, except for sports. So I'm curious how people's cord cutting, getting rid of cable, moving to all these fragmented streaming platforms, how has that changed the sports business model? Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. The the cable bundle, so to speak, and that's think about you know in Canada your Bell or your Rogers box with a bunch of channels on. In the U.S., there's a more complicated system, but uh, that business has really collapsed um, over the last ten years, but acutely in the last I'd say eighteen months or so. Mm. Um, the only thing that people do watch through a cable bundle is uh, news, twenty four hour cable news, and the nightly news. And sports. Um, so sports rights have gone up and up and up because they've become more important to the cable networks. Um, but today we have streamers now in the in the game with sports. Um, so I'll use the NFL again as an example. Um, you know they're they're such a such a big and competitive league. They've done something that really no other sport does is that they have everybody who's in the broadcast game involved. So they have a deal for Thursday Night Football with Amazon now. It's a $1 billion a year package. They also have a package with Fox, with ABC, which also owns ESPN, but does Monday Night Football. They have a deal with NBC for Thursday Night Football, and they have CBS. So you have every traditional big broadcaster involved, plus the biggest streaming company in the world, Amazon, involved. And they're able to extract media rights out of all of them. Um, that's laid the foundation for other sports, both big and small, to extract dollars from streaming rights. Uh, the NBA right now is going through a renegotiation of their uh, broadcast rights. Right now, Turner is their big broadcast partner. They have other broadcast partners as well. But you will see streamers involved. They are right now all arguing and outbidding each other for those rights. Uh, you saw a historic deal with MLS, so Major League Soccer, which is you know admittedly not a big four or even kind of big seven or eight league in the world or even in the US, but they signed a 100% streaming deal with Apple. This is Apple's first big streaming deal. They did a, a small deal with, with MLB, but it was you know kind of insignificant amount of games and insignificant package. This is a full production. Apple is the broadcast partner for Major League Soccer. Uh, we are just starting that season. We're a couple weeks in. I'd say the results are a little bit mixed. We don't know how many people have found Apple as the, as the partner. But, you know, the, the golden goose, the hope for all these leagues is that as their younger viewers, so think about someone under the age of 35 or 40 who unlikely has a cable bundle, uh, hopefully all those smaller, you know, younger viewers are going to find this other way to watch the sport, streaming through Amazon or Paramount Plus or Fubo TV or DAZN or any number of these streaming companies that are involved. From a consumer point of view, am I wrong in thinking that, this kind of sucks. Like, am I going to have to subscribe to 10 different streaming platforms just to watch, you know, every Raptors game? So what's, this is actually an unattended kind of second order effect of what's happened with the unbundling of cable is that Taylor, I'm going to assume you're a big sports fan. Um, and you love to watch, let's say, you know, I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So I'll say it's me. I was sitting here in Toronto. I paid a hundred dollars a month for my bell cable bill. 
Well, the reality is, is that everybody else who subscribed to Bell Cable was subsidizing the cost of me watching the Toronto Maple Leafs on TSN or on Sportsnet because they were also paying for it. But maybe they were just watching Bravo and the History Channel and E, or maybe they were just watching you know CBC News Network and they just had to buy this bundle and didn't realize they were partially paying for my sports channel. Um, now with the unbundling, you're kind of realizing the full cost of what it costs to watch TV. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, NBA players can make hundreds of millions of dollars. It's because the league has sold the media rights for hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And they need to recoup that cost somehow. So if the cable bundle is falling apart, they're not getting that regional cable or national cable money anymore. It's going to have to come from the streamers and the streamers. Well, you know, it's a one to one relationship. So you're right, Taylor. Like it, it is it is a negative consequence, I think, for consumers in this short run, will there be a solution found where we're maybe going to see a rebundling of sports packages? Perhaps. But I think the flip side is that we did get a little bit spoiled for a while where we went from, you know, broadcast TV where, you know, not every game was broadcast. People like who are sports fans now, can you imagine you couldn't see your team? Like you just actually couldn't see a Tuesday night hockey game sometimes to seeing every single sport broadcast to now not only seeing every sport in my local market broadcast, me sitting here in Toronto, I can watch any single sport for any single team, any single league around the world with a streaming pass. Just just name the sport. There's a streaming company who will sell me the rights to watch that. That's a new phenomenon, but the cost associated with that means that I'm probably paying a much more fair share for what it costs to watch that sport. So how do these valuations make sense because if it's if we're if we're talking about how this is potentially maybe negatively impacted the fan experience i'm reading here the deal that you just mentioned the uh major league soccer deal with apple was triple the value of a, its previous media contract mm -hmm. how does that valuation check out and why are all of these leagues securing like similar multiples when it comes to what they can get with the streaming players it, it's a it's so th this is actually a really good insight sarah is that so NBC, CBS, Fox, right? Traditional broadcast companies, they were in the business of uh, selling advertising, right? They're in the business of selling P&G products and Tide and beer and commercial breaks. That's their pro That was their entire business. Streaming companies like Apple or Amazon, that's not their core business. Their core business you know, for Amazon is they're the biggest e-commerce marketplace in the world. For Apple, they are selling devices and hardware and software. That's their key business. This is now essentially just a top of the funnel marketing exercise to... You know, align yourself with sports, capture users, um, broadcast those sports and, you know, hopefully make money on the sports broadcast. But if Amazon doesn't sell any ads against Thursday Night Football for a billion dollars a year, one, that's a small amount of money for Amazon. But two, they now have all of those users who are going to come on to Amazon Prime, become subscribers and buy, you know, bounty or going to buy batteries through Amazon. So it's a way in which, you know, these streaming companies, these tech companies that really don't make their money on content. Uh, trying to Trojan horsing their way into sports. So for the leagues, you know, at the end of the day, what they care about is I got to sell my rights for the most amount of money I can. And if somebody who can lose money on the rights like Apple is going to come pay, well, I'm happy to sell it to them. Does this mean that athletes are going to get paid more as well? Or demand get paid more? It's, it's a good question. Depends on the league, right? So we have complicated um, situations in every single league. So you know, most of the big four leagues have players associations, they're unionized workers, they have collective bargaining agreements, CBAs, you know, hockey fans from Canada will remember multiple lockouts, where the NHL Players Association uh, got into a labor dispute with the National Hockey League resulted in half seasons or full seasons being missed uh, over uh, how the profits were split up. 
Um, so in hockey, we have something that's called hockey-related revenue, HRR, that every team in the league calculates. And between the player pool and the ownership, they are splitting the hockey-related revenue, the HRR, 50-50. Um, then each team has to play within what they call a salary cap. So they're allowed to pay players on their team up to it's about $80 million USD per year right now. And then how they split up that $80 million, again, there's more complications on how much each player can get within that. But that's generally how the revenues are split. So in theory, if the NHL gets more popular uh, and gets bigger, they're going to be able to sell their media rights for more money, which they, by the way, just did. They just doubled the size of their media rights deal in the United States. As that media rights deal makes more money, that means the league's ingesting more money. Presuming that their costs don't go up dramatically with growing, uh, they're going to have more hockey-related revenue. Broadcast TV rights are part of that hockey-related revenue. And the players are going to make more money as a result. And the NBA, we've seen this big time. If you were to go you know, back in time to when Michael Jordan was playing, yes, Michael Jordan was making a lot of money. He was making as much as like a Steph Curry today. But now you get you know 10th, 12th, 13th guy on the bench in the NBA making more money than an all-star would have 20 years ago. That's because the NBA has grown dramatically. They've been able to sell their media rights for a lot more money. Um, and as a result, they're able to also sell sponsorship dollars for more money, et cetera, et cetera. So for the most part, athletes are going to see more money, although depending on the sport and how good your PA is at negotiating, the percentage of that is kind of up for debate. Is there any risk here of... Uh, the leagues kind of like killing the goose that laid the golden egg by, you know, naturally, I guess, selling their broadcast rights for as much as they can, but then having them fragmented over so many different providers that it's harder for a casual fan to like get into basketball than it was, say, 20 years ago when it was just on TV that you already had in your house anyway. I think that's a fear. I think it's a fear for uh, kind of mid-tier sports more than it is for the big sports. I okay. think, you know, I think the NBA is growing dramatically, not just because of the TV rights package, but I think because they are part of kind of the cultural sporting fabric. They have mm -hmm. celebrity endorsement involved. You know, if you go on social media, as much of um, as much as they're growing on broadcast TV, I mean, the ratings are really just growing because more people are spending time with, you know, Instagram players on on nba they've sold their international rights they spent a lot of time you know in china now china's a huge growth market for the nba they marketed really well to the chinese market so they're globalizing their sport in a way and finding new revenues there um the nfl has done a good job with that too the nfl plays multiple games in europe they play a game in uh, london they played a game in germany they played games in mexico city they'll continue to play more games internationally and grow that international media rights dollars but Taylor, to your point, like there is a point of no return. At some point, you sell the media rights to all these places. It's behind all these paywalls. And the average NBA fan says, you know, 10 years ago, I could watch the NBA for you know my cable bundle, which cost me $100 a month. Now I need to subscribe to multiple streaming services. It's difficult to use. And that's just for one sport. My streaming bundle used to get me the NBA, but also the NFL, the NHL, you know, golf and all these things. So there is definitely a, a fear. And I think we're at an inflection point a little bit. Like, Adam, if, we, if we've reached an inflection point, and this is something that people are watching, how does this, what are the scenarios for how this shakes out? Like, undoubtedly, like, if this is not going to be an experience that fans are going to accept. So what, what happens now? That's a good question. So um, I'm going to use an example of, of it pushing too far that happened just recently in the United States. So people may have heard that regional sports networks, uh, RSNs as they're called, 
some have gone bankrupt in the last year. So a little bit of context on this. Uh, Fox used to own uh, a number of regional sports networks in the United States. If you were an NHL fan in Nashville or in Anaheim, you'd get you know Fox Sports Southwest or Fox Sports South. That would be the way that you'd watch your local team. Uh, when Disney bought uh, the rights to Fox's catalog, Fox spun off their movies and their TV networks. Uh, the United States said that uh, it's going to be anti-competitive for Disney to own all of this. They also own ESPN. They own ABC. You're going to have to divest and spin off the regional sports networks, the RSNs. Uh, Disney held a bidding process. They were expecting to get about $10 billion for these RSNs. Uh, they ended up getting about uh, around eight or ten billion dollars from a group called Sinclair Broadcast. Sinclair owns a bunch of broadcast channels in the U.S. They formed uh, what is called Diamond Sports Group, which was going to operate these RSNs. And these RSNs were having regional sports for baseball, NBA, uh, NHL in about fourteen different markets in the U.S. Um, the business did not translate into the ad dollars that they were expecting. Uh, they missed an interest payment, uh, I think, three weeks ago now. Uh, and are planning to go bankrupt. They're intentionally going bankrupt. What's going to happen in those markets is is still very much up for debate. So the Major League Baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred, had said that if you had an RSN in one of those markets that's gone bankrupt, you will get broadcast your local MLB game. But who's going to actually foot the bill for that is up in the air. Some owners are um, trying to spin up their own streaming services. Uh, so in New York, Madison Square Garden Group, which you know runs all the New York-based teams, has now an MSG Plus product, $10 a month, and you can stream all the games that previously would have been on an RSN. Uh, Nesson, N-E-S-N, which is the uh, New England Sports Network, same thing. They have a uh, $30 a month subscription, I think, that gets you the Bruins, the Red Sox, all your kind of local New England sports. But there is a chance that, um, you know, in a year's time, these owners are going to realize that they're not getting enough subscription revenue and ad revenue from the streaming platforms to offset what they used to get from the RSNs. And the money has to come from somewhere. So either the values of these teams are going to go down because they're at historic highs right now. Uh, Revenue for the leagues is going to go down potentially. Does that mean that salaries end up going down for the players? Perhaps. Or are the leagues going to have to find emerging ways to make more money, which a lot of them are pivoting to do. You'll see a lot more sponsorship dollars coming into leagues now. It's a much higher percentage of revenue. Sponsorship being like, imagine, you know, Budweiser ads all around the, the rink or all around a building. And the international markets, like I talked about. That's why leagues like the NFL and NBA and Major League Baseball are looking for expansion opportunities into European markets, into Asian markets, into Latin American markets. So how come Canada doesn't have RSNs? <laughs> Okay, so so Canada, I mean, I feel like a lot of the audience here is Canadian, so they're probably saying there's a lot of American talk. Tell me how this plays out for me. Canada, like in a lot of industries, is monopolistic in nature, right? So we really have in the sports space two big broadcasters, which is Bell Media, which owns TSN and CTV, and Rogers Sports and Media, which is owned by Rogers Communications. They own Sportsnet and also have the NHL rights, although it's broadcast on CBC, Sportsnet own the rights and actually do the broadcast work. Uh, the reason we don't have regional sports networks is that pretty much from the start of cable, they were nationalized and these regional networks never popped up. We also have this verticalization that doesn't exist in the United States. So in the U.S., your local broadcast channel could be owned by one company. The The box that you get, the Comcast or Xfinity box that you get your cable from, that could be owned by another company. And then a third company is going to own the actual network that broadcasts the games. Here, it's very likely that you're watching a Bell Media owned and operated uh, TV network like TSN on your Bell Media satellite 
um, and or your Bell Cable or Five like that. And and they really have this national monopoly on the league. Now, is that good for Canadian viewers or bad? You know, some might say that in the current RSN situation, it's actually a pretty good deal in Canada to get your sports uh, because you don't have this kind of regional sports network risk. However, it is often, you know, uncompetitive bidding uh, for the rights up here. And uh, from a league perspective, it can be not very profitable to to come into Canada because neither Bell nor TSN want to pay the big money because they're not going to outcompete each other for the rights. Um, so it can mm-hmm. kind of cut both ways, but it is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a unique market compared to the United States. Interesting. So that, is that part of the explanation of why there's not more NHL teams in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, okay. one, I think, you know, Gary Bettman, who's been commissioner of the NHL for a long time, has been focused on the U.S. market because right. um, when you have a new team in the league, you pay an expansion draft fee. Uh, so Seattle Kraken are the, are the latest team to join the NHL. It's in the hundreds of millions, almost a billion dollars just for the rights to buy a team. That's not the cost of the team. That's the right to buy it as the expansion team, right? So that is cash that goes right in your pocket. Frankly, there's just not a lot of wealthy Canadians who are willing to do that. But the second thing is that, and this is probably more important, is that Gary knows that um, collecting the media rights to a bunch of U.S.-based sports teams and trying to sell them to ESPN and TNT, which the NHL just did, by the way. They moved their rights last year from NBC to TNT and ESPN, and they more than doubled the cost of those rights. They went from $300 million to $600 million. Um, that's a much better proposition than trying to pool Canadian and U.S. rights together. So in the NHL, the Canadian rights are, are one thing, the U.S. rights are the other, and are kind of kept separate. And other leagues, for the most part, they're looking for the U.S. expansion because that's where the dollars are. I have what is probably such a silly question, but we've talked about expansion and we've kind of talked about globalization to some degree, like the NBA going on and playing over in China. What is stopping sports like at the North American border, right? Like there's seemingly all these leagues that just don't, they don't cross the ocean, right? Like you have to wait for the Olympics to watch people play from all over the world. Well, not really, I guess, because NHL players and all leagues, like they're from kind of all over. But what what is, I guess, like what is this idea of the North American leagues, the European leagues, and why don't we have like global leagues? Well, I think we're we're actually getting to the point where we might get some global leagues because of the way that what I've just talked about, the media market changing so much. So I'll give you this example is that um, there's nothing stopping right now you from going on to Apple uh, and getting your MS, uh, MLS rights package, no matter where you are in the world, right? Apple is a global company. They're happy to service fans in every market in the world. So it would make sense that Apple would love for a league that is available in all sorts of different markets. Um, whereas ESPN, they're selling ads and they're selling subscriptions to people based in the United States. Anybody tuning in outside the United States is not going to you know, fall into their bottom line and they're not going to be able to make any money off them. So that regionality that used to exist with traditional TV networks uh, doesn't exist with streaming companies the same way. So I think we're going to see more globalization happen because these streaming networks are much more global than your traditional broadcast networks. Um, but there is also the logistical thing. So um, it is difficult to you know, schedule international games. The NFL has found a way to do it. Uh, Major League Baseball has done a little bit. Excuse me, the NHL has done a little bit, but not much. But there are other types of leagues like golf and like Formula One that are this touring model that really are borderless, right? So the PGA Tour is very U.S. focused as an entity, but they play events 
theoretically everywhere in the world. Uh, the Formula One, they decided that the U.S. was a good market for them, so they added another race in, in Miami. They added a race in Las Vegas. They decide that Qatar wants to pay a lot of money for a race. Well, guess what? There's now a race in Qatar. So Formula One is this league that's taking advantage of this globalization. They really are borderless in a way that some of the domestic leagues aren't. Could that be mm. one of the reasons why golf was targeted for like a challenger league? Yeah, that's that's a really good segue, actually. And maybe just to give a little context for people who aren't aware and aren't, you know, big golf fans. Um, there's been a big challenge to the traditional kind of golf ecosystem uh, where the PGA Tour uh, is the dominant league where something called Live Golf uh, has has come up. And it's a Saudi backed golf league, uh, you know, funded pretty much entirely from the Saudi Investment Fund and Aramco. Um, this league is, you know, probably been targeted one, uh, Sarah, as you mentioned, because it can be global in nature. This touring model, uh, is, you know, easy enough to replicate. Um, there's an element of what people are calling sports washing to golf and that the Saudis, and they've done this around buying, uh, EPL teams, Premier League soccer teams as well. They want access and acceptance within the Western business community. Golf is so closely tied with corporate America and the corporate West that it is a really good way to have a conversation uh, with uh, the Western business community. If all of a sudden you are hosting large golf tournaments with the likes of Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson uh, involved as a way to really normalize uh, doing business with the Saudi Arabians and, and doing business with that part of the world in the West. So there's those two elements, but also there's an exposure in golf that other leagues don't have because I mentioned you know, the NHLPA or the, the NBA Players Association, those being unionized kind of collective bargaining agreements that they play under. Golf is different. Golf, every single golfer is really an independent contractor. The PGA Tour is a membership organization. It is not a league the same way where they pay the players' contracts. You show up to a tournament that the PGA Tour is hosting. They say there's a $10 million or last weekend we had a $25 million purse. And they say, here are the rules of the game. The first place person is going to get this, this, and this. And beyond that, like kind of not anyone is welcome. But if you go through the proper qualifying channels, theoretically, anybody can play in a PGA Tour event. The U.S. Open example, it's an open. Anybody can technically qualify for the U.S. Open. There's no kind of open tryout for the NBA, right? It is It is not the same in that sense. So, you know, golf has this, so many weird nuances in that, you know, live golf has, has emerged. If that's successful or not, we will see. But uh, But that's probably the reason it's been targeted. I keep trying to get them to let me come on off the bench for the Raptors, but no, no emails back yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe for the nine Oh five team. Yeah. <laughs> maybe next year. Um, okay. So I think we, we would be remiss if we didn't get in a question about betting at some point in this conversation. So can you just talk a little bit about how legalized sports betting is changing the business of sports? Yeah, so in the United States, sports betting was uh, was not legal uh, at a federal level. Um, that changed a, a few years ago now, where the federal government it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was determined that it was unconstitutional for the federal government to tell the states how to operate when it comes to, to gambling. Um, that opened the door for each state to start a regulatory process to legalize sports betting, amongst other things, amongst you know casino betting, uh, specifically digitally, so not just in a sports book or in an actual physical location, but online. What's happened is, you know, uh, a handful of states, about half of them right now in the U.S., have gone through the regulatory process. They have legislation now, and they are live with sports books betting. Um, in Canada, a similar thing happened where the Canadian federal government followed suit and said, we will allow provinces to make their own rules about how they want to handle legalized sports betting, what they call in Canada single game uh, sports betting. 
uh, and Ontario. The uh, we're coming up on actually the one year anniversary of it being legalized in Ontario. So if you're listening to this on Ontario, you no doubt have seen advertisements for DraftKings and FanDuel and BetMGM and dozens of other sports books operating. Um, it's been a huge change to the sports landscape in the U.S. and Canada specifically. Uh, it's rolling out across Latin America. It's been like this for a long time in Europe. This is not new news for people in most of Western Europe, uh, specifically in the United Kingdom. You know, sports betting has been part of the, the sports landscape for a very long time. But in Canada and the U.S., it's done a couple of things. One, it's unlocked a brand new category for advertising, uh, a, a pretty big category, right? If you're a sports betting company, uh, where else to reach sports fans but during sports? Uh, and who else do you want to reach but, but you know, young predominantly male who are going to wager on sports. So that's one area which they're now legally allowed to advertise to you in uh, Ontario and Canada and then different states in the United uh, in the US. That's one thing. Um, the second thing that's happened is a bit of a cottage industry around uh, sports betting as a kind of information uh, opportunity. So for a long time, people would who are sports fans were wagering on sports. And this is part of the reason that the federal government in Canada and the Supreme Court in the U.S. decided to overturn the regulation. It's because it was a giant black market. There were tens of billions of dollars in Ontario being wagered illegally with illegal offshore books. Uh, so the idea was, OK, let's bring that in front of kind of a, a legal framework. Let's have people, you know, properly pay money and pay taxes and have all these kind of know your customer and responsible gaming messaging the same way we have with alcohol uh, in, in Canada. Uh, but what's created is now an opportunity for sports broadcasts, sports commenters, sports media personalities to openly discuss gambling. They used to kind of mention, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, there's a lot of people who might want to see the Raptors win by five tonight, you know, because the spread was four and a half points. Uh, or you'd see the NFL, you'd see, you know, Chris Collins were talking about a game that was maybe a blowout, but he'd be like, there's a lot of people in America who are hoping that this doesn't go in because they, they were betting on an under for the score. Now it's openly talked about. Uh, and there's a whole other industry around talking about sports betting. A lot of sports fans, you know, that's part of the way that they talk about sports. They talk about underdogs and favorites. That translates so nicely into sports. The same way people who are hockey or NBA fans love playing in, you know, fantasy hockey teams. Fantasy hockey is really just kind of diet betting. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are fantasy hockey fans turn into actual bettors. Looking back, I guess, a year into sports betting in Ontario, has it achieved the outcomes that people thought it would? Yeah, it, it's actually overachieved in a lot of metrics in terms of um, one, the amount of interest from sports books coming into Ontario. Um, Paul Burns, uh, you know, I think projected who's, who's running this kind of entire process and really responsible for the Canadian Gaming Council. Um, I think they projected a lot less uh, sports books actually wanted to come in, which I think is a little bit of credit to the Ontario government for creating an environment that was attractive for brands. Um, there's definitely been a, a healthy amount of player deposits. So from a business perspective, sports gambling companies, I think, are happy with how the province has rolled out. Um, from a kind of integration with sports, I still think there's been a, a few um, hurdles to overcome, specifically that a lot of the sports that we do in Canada are national and the broadcast is national and the conversation around sports is national, but it is still illegal in you know most of the provinces outside of Ontario. So there's a little bit of an awkwardness of you know people seeing an integration within Hockey Night in Canada for uh, a betting brand, but sitting in Saskatchewan and saying, well, that's not a company that I can, I can't go on their website. It's illegal for me to do that. It's kind of strange. So there's been a, a few hurdles there, but I do think that on the whole, the Ontario regulation has been you know, pretty strong, and I do think that the people generally are happy with how it's ruled out. Um, 
we'll, we'll see what happens with the rest of the country. Alberta will likely be legal soon. And I think we'll see a legal framework across the country at some point. Will Ontario serve as an example for that? Like, what was the consultation process in terms of, because, like, I know that the requirements are a lot um, are a lot stricter in Ontario. Like, you can't advertise with, like, the $50 bonuses or whatever, yeah. things like that, too. Are there, how did that work? Yeah, well, I, I think responsible gaming was a really important part of what the Ontario government, the AGCO, was asking for. Um, so there are states in the U.S. where you can promote, like, uh, if if you bet now, we'll give you a thousand dollar bonus, or uh, you know a little bit more. I would say predatory advertising. Um, in the same way, in, in in Ontario or anywhere in Canada, Molson Canadian can't sit there and advertise. You know, come chug or shotgun a beer with me, uh, or come get drunk. You'll never see someone sip a beer in a beer commercial. Next time you watch a beer commercial on TV, it's illegal to show someone actually having a sip of a beer. You'll see 19 plus messaging, a certain amount of ad spend against alcohol has to be around don't drink and drive and they support mother against drunk driving. Same thing is true in Ontario with responsible gaming messaging. There's a lot of anti-money laundering uh, work that had to be done before the legalization came in. The reality is, is when it was illegal, um, Gambling was one of the best ways to wash money in Ontario, and a lot of criminal activity happened through offshore sports books, where you were able, able to um, you know clean money. Uh, now there's something called KYC, which is know your customer. If you sign up for a sports book in Ontario, you need to take a photo of your license or some kind of ID. They need to know who you are, your address, um, and all of that is registered with the government. So from that perspective, from kind of a safety around gambling, not targeting minors, when they can advertise, how they can advertise, I think that framework will probably be replicated in other provinces. But there are there are other people around Canada and around the world who would even like tighter regulation, who would like to even have uh, less uh, exposure in advertising. They would like less um, kind of ability to promote. So we'll see what happens. I think you know the framework that happens in the UK is probably where Ontario got most of their rules from, which is by and large, being a success. Uh, gambling has been legal there for a long time and is kind of part of the sports fabric. But we'll see what happens in other provinces. Do you have a sense of how important a revenue stream gaming has become for sports media businesses? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for TSN and, and Sportsnet, it's, it's a huge opportunity. They've opened up a, a net new category that's up there with you know, any of the big five categories in terms of TV, radio, print, advertising. So again, to give people an idea, when you're watching a broadcast, let, let's just take a hockey game, for example. In Canada on TV, you'll get about 12 minutes of advertising per hour. Um, that's the CRTC regulated amount of ads per hour. So 12 minutes is 24, 30 second spots. Most ads are sold in 30 second spots. And typically the biggest category and in, in still this day is, is QSRs, which is quick serve restaurants, financial institutions, automotive. Um, today, those three are still bigger than sports betting as a whole. Those are still the, the ads you're going to see the most are McDonald's and Tim Hortons and Wendy's, Toyota, Honda. You know, I'm just naming brands in those categories. That, so no one there gets mad at me, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you'll see CIBC <laughs> and Scotiabank and TD because I know my DMs are going to be full of someone that's upset. But beyond that, sports betting, betting has kind of crept into that top conversation of uh, a category, which means a lot of ad spend against it, which means that, you know, it's more revenue for the sports networks. Um, sports networks uh, operate with a finite amount of advertising time. You can only spend, you know, there's only so many minutes in the day. They can only sell so many ads in a day. So the more demand means there is uh, increase in price, like very simple supply and demand economics there. So one more category means one more person bidding for ad time, which means the price is going to go up. Okay. Uh, can we do a quick rapid fire to, to wrap it up? Absolutely. I have, so, I have some 
perhaps this is like a proper this is like a real sports segment now rapid fire is like a real sports radio type stuff okay so exactly (laughs) here we go taking calls after this yeah 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 let's open up the phone lines after the break so these are these these are perhaps less relevant to the other questions we asked but just uh for my own curiosity any chance that you think toronto is going to get an nfl team in the next decade uh i'm gonna say 20 percent chance 20 percent. that's not bad yeah i'll, I'll take it 20 percent. i don't think the bill i don't think the bills are gonna allow it is is the reality is that the main obstacle well there's a number of obstacles but i do think that if the bills ownership has their way uh they would not allow it sidebar that's the reason why there, there's no other nhl team in toronto because toronto maple leaf ownership does not want there to be another team in toronto and they're making sure that doesn't happen so if i was the bills i would not want anyone in toronto to have an nfl team we'll see what happens though we're gonna do a follow-up episode on just this topic specifically okay we can talk specifically just the toronto maple leafs ownership (laughs) that we might need to more there's lots to talk about there that's that's a good segue into into the next rapid fire so odds of a nhl expansion anywhere in canada uh what how long do let's say next five years uh, 50%. 50% where? Atlantic, Quebec, Atlanta, or Atlantic Canada, or the GTA. Okay. Interesting. And Leafs this so, year. The, the, they're going to win the cup. They're going to win the cup. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Optimism runs <laughs> forever in Leafs Nation. <laughs> I'm not sure if I just jinxed it or if that's just how I have to do it. I mean, I've been saying that for years, and so far I haven't been right. So at some point it has to flip back, right? At some point it does, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, Adam. That was a great conversation, super interesting stuff. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Adam. I feel like we uncovered so many things within the sports world that I've never heard talked about in the way that he explained it, right? Like the fact that totally. the... Yeah, like why the PGA Tour was kind of targeted by like a rival league. The fact that Jerry Jones just like got TV and like happened to like understand what it could do for football. There was just so many interesting themes that I've never heard um, that I've, I've never heard anyone unpack. What stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, you don't really think about it, right? When you watch sports just as a as a consumer, as a fan, you don't think about all of these things that are going on in the background, like how the NFL... You know, I've always wondered why is the NFL such a uh, dominant force on TV, right? Like it really is almost a American national religion. Like every Sunday, everyone sits Truly. down and watch watches football. And why is that? Well, it's because they did all of these little things that made it a great TV product, right? Like coming up with the yard line for the field and coming up with the score at the bottom of the TV screen, and that now every sport does, but things that you know were an innovation i guess at the time um and it's interesting to see like how that's kind of evolving i feel like you kind of see that now with formula one which adam was talking about as well coming up with these new products that are made for a different media environment like a streaming world where Mm -hmm. now you have a series where you you know get to know the players and go behind the scenes of the sport and get invested in it in a different way so it's interesting just to see that evolution of how these things change, even though the sport is, you know, we think of it as sort of a constant. That's the key word, isn't it? It's product. And I think that I was, I don't have a great grip on sports and I was excited to have this conversation because I wanted to learn more about it. But I think right out the gate, when 
you start talking about sports as a product, it all kind of starts to click. And that's immediately kind of how we started this conversation. Because the second that you do that, all of these decisions start to make a ton of sense, right? Like just where the money is flowing in terms of kind of just like streaming deals, what athletes are paid, what these different, you know, how sports are maybe reaching out to, you know, other countries, right? It's interesting if you put it in the lens of, um, you know, globalization, right? It's like, you know, it's the same as, you know, taking uh, a product and kind of exporting it right over to Europe. It's kind of just the exact same thing, except for it's, becomes a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around because you think where you're like, oh, well, there's player salaries, there's, you know, concessions and tickets and and all of this. But if you look at it through that lens, I find sports are really, um, it's the best kind of way to just like level the playing field and be able to kind of like analyze team to team what's what's going on there. But yeah, the emergence of Formula One of pickleball, you'll be watching pickleball. I will not be watching pickleball. (laughs) I don't care (laughs) how much they try to push that. That quote unquote sport, I will not be watching pickleball. Are you watching Formula One? No, I'm not. Everyone says I need to get into it and maybe I will at some point, but I, I just haven't. Are you? Um, I watched the first few episodes. It's the best one that they have there because all the other leagues are trying to replicate the same thing, right? That they did with, you know, uh, Drive to Survive, right? And so I've yeah. been watching the golf one. I watched the tennis one and it really helps you get to know the players too. But I need to, I need to finish the Formula One, uh, one as well. But I think that's like a whole other conversation is like what not only just like streaming deals are doing, but like what these reality kind of shows are doing for sports. But like one of the many things I'm sure we'll need to talk about when we hopefully have Adam back on in future to, you know, well, yeah, shed I mean, some light I- on what's happening. I, I, I wondered why like the NBA doesn't have its own, like I, I'm a, more of an NBA fan, I, I, but they don't have a drive to survive equivalent or something and all these other leagues are doing it. So I wonder why that is. And I'm sure there's some business reason why that's not happening that like, I just haven't thought of. I think they of. make enough money already. I oh, don't think can, they need more. I don't really? Think they need you more think money. they're like, no, I'm good. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> they'd be that's the first exactly people ever to say that. <laughs> That's why they had such a hard time getting the golfers on the show or like the ones that only had or that's why they that's why people say the the golf show maybe didn't uncover as much as people were hoping because they were they were really um reserved with how much camera time they wanted to give or or how much they wanted to, you know, actually let a camera crew follow them around for months during the season which I guess is which I guess is fair if you think about it. Well, you know, I mean that is I, I couldn't be me. I wouldn't want a camera crew following me around. But in the bubble, when the NBA was in a bubble during COVID, that would have all, been the time. They, so, to do a real show. so one player did. He brought his own camera and just started shooting like his own content for a YouTube channel. I think it was Matisse Tybel, and he would just upload like a 20, 30 minute long video from the bubble of you know him going about his day, talking to other players. It was great. It was fascinating. And I don't know why the league hasn't done it. Maybe you're right. Maybe they just, you know, can't get the players on board with it. But uh, yeah, we'll have to have Adam back on because that, I have so many questions, including that one. That, uh, came from that conversation. why the leagues don't inc- encourage more vlogging from the athletes. More vlog, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's what people want. That's well, should what we leave some it there? Want. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch. By the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And follow our guest, Adam Seaborn. You can follow him on Twitter at AHB 
Seaborn. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. You should also subscribe to our daily business newsletter at readthepeak.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak.